Hi, and welcome to the Fair Perspectives Podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with Greg Lukinoff. Greg is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. He is the author of several books, including The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, which he co-wrote with Jonathan Haidt. In this episode, we discuss free speech and dissect arguments for censorship and why they don't hold water. We also touch on cancel culture, disinformation, campus free speech codes, and Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Greg Lukinoff. Greg Lukianov, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's definitely an honor. I've been a follower and admirer of yours for a very long time, and I think this is the first time we're actually face to face. We've we've DM'd on Twitter a little bit. Yeah, no, but, uh, it, it's it's funny that we've never actually like met in person before. Yeah, it's weird. It's the, the way it works these days. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're getting <laughs> we're getting a little bit closer every day. Yep. And it's great to see your uh, your very bearded visage. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> you've got that Game of Thrones beard going on. Yeah, I feel weird without so, a beard at this point. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> I do too. I haven't shaved in a while, and uh, I, I I drop at least ten years when I do. I'm sure you're <laughs> the same. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you're a free speech guy. We're all about free speech. Free speech is all over the place in in our our discourse and our media today. And I, I thought probably the best place to start, or met one of many places that would be good to start, is to just ask you what I think is the most annoying question, or the <laughs> most anno- or ask you about the most annoying bit regarding free speech, which is the first thing that most people say the minute that we start having the conversation, mm-hmm. which is the fire in a crowded theater thing, mm. which drives <sighs> me nuts. And... You know, I, as far as I'm concerned, Christopher Hitchens put the kibosh on it when he yeah. did a, a lecture on free speech where he was in a theater and he began by saying, fire, fire, yeah. fire, 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 fire. So why don't you tell us what you think about the, the fire in a crowded theater thing and why is it a canard? Uh, it's maddening. The fire in the crowded theater thing is maddening to First Amendment lawyers for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which is it's used rhetorically um, to to basically say to, as an excuse for censorship all, all, all the time. And, and, and in the case, the Oliver Wendell Holmes came up with it. He was using it as an excuse for censorship. It was a case where he uh, it was the I believe that was the Abrams case where he said he said that um, uh, he likened handing out um, pacifist and, and, and anarchist uh, literature to being like shouting fire in a crowded theater, which is, of course, a ridiculous argument to make. But it's so nice and pithy. It's so compelling that, that even though that case is no longer considered even to be good law, um, th- that, that saying survives. I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes changed his opinion on freedom of speech after that. Like that was his last mm. terrible free speech opinion. <laughs> um, and, and people still cite it because they, they, they like that comparison. And I always yeah. point out that, that uh, Gild, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, what, one of my favorite plays, um, Tom Stoppard, um, they would do that every single night. There's a, there's a scene in it where they go, fire! Um, and, <laughs> and they look around the audience and go, well, there goes that idea. You know, it, it, and so that, that must have been done tens of thousands of times. And, you know, mm. it, it, it really brought that point home. And, and I think 
you know, for me, the, the, it's not even a legal thing, right? I'm not a lawyer and that's not my area at all. But for me, it's just a practical thing of understanding context and understanding intention, right? Yeah. Like, so yelling fire in a crowded theater with the intention of causing hysteria and a panic, mm-hmm. that's very different than merely shouting fire in a crowded theater. Right. Oh, oh, and and that's one thing that we always have to add to it. It's also falsely shouting, uh, uh, right? Fire in a crowd theater because people drop the falsely and such that it creates a panic. They even get rid of the qualifications that makes it slightly less terrible. But even then, it's for, it's from an right. overturned opinion. Um, you know, <laughs> for, for the for, for the rest of his career, Oliver Wendell Holmes was was a uh, was really quite good on free speech. He he was like mm-hmm. the turning point. And it's so funny to cite a pre-turning point on freedom of speech case. And it was it was yeah. even that summer, I believe. I think it was like six weeks later that he, he essentially showed that he's changed his mind on freedom of speech, and that he actually Just goes to show him and Brandeis together. Came, you know, came to the conclusion that the free speech, uh, that the, the the First Amendment needed to mean something. Which, believe it or not, prior to about 1925, it didn't mean very much. Wow. So, so what do you think would have been a great pithy kind of? Um, you know, phrase to, to kind of discuss any, or, or, you know, do you think that there should be any um, limits at all to the, the First Amendment? I, I do. Um, and the nice thing about, you know, American First Amendment law is it's about a hundred years of some of the smartest people in the country trying to figure out how you have freedom of speech in the real world. There isn't a pithy, you know, there, there's, and, and thank goodness, there isn't like a, like a single saying, you, you know, you, you can always refer back to that explains it. Um, but for example, you know, true threats are not protected. Actually, true threats are one of those things that I think should be policed even more um, on, on social media than it is. And true threats are making a reasonable person believe you, you, they are in bodily harm uh, um, or, or de- in fear of bodily harm or death. And uh, I think that the fact that um, we know that's not protected uh, and people get away with it anyway, I think that undermines people's faith in, in um uh, in protected speech to agree when they realize that people can, you know, scare them, uh, you know, intentionally make people think that they're going to be killed um, and, and have nothing happen to them. There's an incitement, of course, you know, w- which was the standard that, that um, in the Brandenburg case that, but it has to be imminent uh, lawless activity. It has to be likely to happen as well. It has to be your intention. Um, you know, obscenity is, is another exception um, that essentially, you know, under, Contemporary community standards that um, that, uh, it, for, that something that meets the period interest. Um, it's it's a, the Miller standard is a little bit confusing. Um, I think, frankly, if you're over 18, with the exception of child pornography, you should be able to watch whatever kind of you know adult material you want. So I actually I, I think that one doesn't quite go far enough. But like I said, child pornography is not protected. Defamation is not protected. It's a very well thought out uh, body of law mm-hmm. that actually is very practical. Um, but one thing that that that, that it, that it does repeat is that uh, going after someone just on the basis of their viewpoint, never okay. Do you think, uh, I, I feel like there's a lot in what you said that ends up forcing people to sort of back up and mm-hmm. reevaluate concepts because, you know, so with, with the, the idea of threats, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you redefine harm, then we're in a mess, right? So, because then a threat yeah. can be, well, if you don't affirm my identity, you are threatening me with harm or actually causing me harm. And then that causes that, that has that domino effect of like, well, that becomes then a justifiable means or justifiable reason for censorship or regulation of speech. So what do you think about all that stuff? Like, how do we, how do we even deal with this? 
I think actually the law it um, has always been quite clear on how you avoid that. And one of them is by having the definition be, you know, it would place a reasonable person um, in fear of bodily harm or death. Mm. Um, you know, it, 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 redefining harm, you know, the, the Supreme Court would just sort of roll their eyes at you, for example. <laughs> so a lot of the, a lot of the things that people uh, try to do, like on the Internet or, or, or on the Twitters in order to sort of turn freedom of speech, uh, you know, on its head, courts have been dealing with for uh, 100 years mm-hmm. and, and, and not taking them all that seriously. The um, and when it comes to the ideas like harassment, you know, we've seen how badly that can be abused on campus. That's not even supposed to be a, a really an exception to freedom of speech. It's supposed to be considered not speech because it's a pattern of discriminatory behavior. Um, it, mm. It's not just having an opinion, uh, for example. So, Greg, that actually makes me think of another thing that I hear a lot. I, I end up talking about free speech a lot. I end up getting pegged as a free speech guy. I mean, I am a free speech guy, but. For some reason, people come at me a lot about this, particularly because I'm such a stickler for, you know, policing words in particular or pretending, in my view, pretending that words are the problem rather than the meanings that we infuse words with. And I feel like that that mistake that people make is a really consequential one. But another thing that I hear a lot is that two things, actually where one person will justify censorship by saying, um, we already have censorship. We already have um, restrictions on free speech. So, you know, we have defamation laws and we have uh, libel laws and we have um, things like that. So this this would fall under that category, whatever it is, you know, whether it's hate speech or whatever. And the other thing that people say is that it isn't free speech unless... Well, it isn't free speech because I said something and now I'm suffering consequences. So people are criticizing me for what I said. So I don't have free speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious what you think about both of those things. Let's start with the, the whole defamation and libel laws thing. We have those laws yeah. and those are regulations technically on, on speech. But mm-hmm. how, how, do they, how do they relate to this idea of like, well, we have those. So why wouldn't we have something for hate speech, for example? Sure. Yeah, th- this is the argument that Stanley Fish made in his "There's no such thing as free speech, and it's a good thing too." I forget exactly mm-hmm. um, the, the title. And you might be surprised to know uh, that I actually know Stanley Fish. I like him a great deal as a person, um, but I but I think his argument in that book is kind of simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically saying, "Well, there are some exceptions to free speech, so it's always been that way. So mm-hmm. therefore, why not a new one?" It's like mm-hmm. that doesn't. That's not that's not actually the powerful argument that you think it is. Um, and one of the things that is the uh, great stream through First Amendment law, as I mentioned before, was this absolute uh, prohibition against viewpoint discrimination, basically saying if you're going to allow speech, uh, you know, on a, on a particular topic, even in a, in a limited public forum that might say that, we, you know, we're, we're not this is going to be about discussion of economics or something like that. It, the um, you can't actually say. Uh, but yes, but I will censor viewpoints I like, at least that, that is, you know, if, if you're the state. So it, I think what they're trying to do, usually it comes from people who don't understand the law that well. The uh, categorical approach um, that the First Amendment takes, that essentially in order to maximize the amount of protected speech we have in the United States, we do something from a, from a, a choice architecture, psychological standpoint, which is very clever. Which is essentially you have to create a new category and it has to be narrowly tailored. Um, it has to, you know, it has to be a discrete uh, category and it can't be just about the suppression of ideas. Mm. 
And what about this thing about, you know, which to me, it, it seems silly, but this idea that, you know, well, I don't have free speech because every time I say something, people get really mad at me and say terrible things to me. <laughs> it's like, well, it's mm-hmm. not free then. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it's kind of funny because there's a difference between um, what's protected under the First Amendment, which is, you know, pretty much every opinion, uh, but including your right to, you know, call someone a, a jerk or an idiot for having that mm-hmm. opinion and not making a meaningful distinction between what makes speech more useful. Um, and, and I talk a lot about this when I talk about free speech culture beyond law. I talk about things like giving people the benefit of the doubt, trying to figure out where they're really coming from, for example, having viewpoint diversity in any group. Because, if, you know, for example, you can have academic freedom, which is kind of a cousin, like a, a, a overlapping Boolean sphere with freedom of speech. But if all, you know, five people in your department completely agree, you're not getting the full benefit of freedom of speech. So I, I did a debate with Ken White over reason, talking about free speech culture versus free speech law. Um, my opinion is that free speech uh, culture is actually what created free speech law. There, there, there was an idea that free speech was valuable, obviously, before there was a First Amendment or else they wouldn't, you know, Madison wouldn't have put it in the, wouldn't have written the First Amendment in the first place if, there, if that value didn't exist. And I've watched, you know, some groups uh, get very technical about um, free, the, the beginning and end of free speech is just what the, what the First Amendment allows. And I think the First Amendment is necessary, uh, but not sufficient. Um, you, you need norms like taking seriously the possibility you might be wrong, hearing people out, being in a group where, where debate and discussion is OK. Mm-hmm. Right, because because one of the things that which you've written about is um, is this uh, kind of phenomenon of, of cancel culture, right, where uh, people are, are deplatformed or fired or disinvited for for speech. And this is directly related to, to having a, a culture of free speech. And, and in many cases, that can affect your life. You're, you're marinating in, in, in the culture and in, in discourse online. And, and that can affect you more than, you know, the, the, the law does. So even though you're protected by law, losing your job is, is a far bigger impact to you as, as a person. And with regard to the, the New York Times piece also recently that I think uh, the editorial, um, which I think... I, I, you know, because like Angel, you mentioned, uh, you know, that the the consequences to to free speech, this argument that oh, if I got criticized, I you know was mm-hmm. um, that that's not free speech. Uh, the New York Times did make a mistake, right? I think when they said that um, you had a right not to be shamed <laughs> yeah. or not to be criticized, which which that's not what this debate is about. And I think it gave you know kind of the opponents uh, of free speech some ammunition some ammunition over there. Could you, could you kind of weigh in a little bit more about, about uh, kind of the culture and how that relates to, you know, cancel culture and how this really affects uh, how we experience speech in America? Sure. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll, I'll probably start like from the beginning. Cancel culture is a term that I didn't actually love. I still don't love it. Um, but I'm working on a book um, with a young journalist named Ricky Schlott um, that's going to try to answer this, uh, you know, all in one place. Say so, like it's ludicrous at this point to not believe that cancel culture is real. And that it, honestly, if if someone is saying, oh, this isn't a real thing, they're, they're really undermining their own credibility more than anybody else's at this point. Um, and so, and what the way I define cancel culture is actually very simple. Um, I've been doing this since 2001. I was a First Amendment defender before that, even in law school, when I interned at the, uh, at the ACLU, this was, you know, it's my passion in life. Um, and sometime around 2014, uh, both on campus and off, I saw a huge uptick, uh, an immeasurable uptick at that, of people getting fired 
getting expelled, losing, you know, having their careers ruined because of uh, of expressing an opinion or making an off-color joke, sometimes, you know, believing that this has even been done in private. And that was that was a big change. And it wasn't subtle. It wasn't like, you know, that, that um, there was this gradual shift towards cancel culture. It, it was like, I talk about it particularly on campus, like lightning struck. It was, you know, the end of 2013, you start seeing things I'd, I'd never seen before on campus. And in this case, um, it was student-driven. Uh, so one of the things that we started doing, because, it, you know, I would say that in my career, there are a couple moments when things just got a lot worse. Uh, 2007 was a really bad year for administrative censorship. Uh, my first book, um, oh, this is on campus, Unlearning Liberty, is, is really about, I'd say, about 20, uh, 2001 to 2011. Um, and 2007 was a particularly bad year, like really aggressive pro, uh, ideological programs like at University of Delaware, for example. But it was 2014 when I started seeing the students being suddenly bad on free speech, demanding disinvitations, demanding new speech codes, demanding things I previously had never heard of, like microaggression policies or trigger warnings. All the evidence, by the way, trigger warnings don't help. There's some evidence they're actually harmful, and I'm sure they are harmful to professors' willingness to talk about, to, to teach controversial ideas. And so that, that was a step backwards. To, uh, 2017, um, that was the, when I started seeing actual violence. You know, that was the the Berkeley riot. That was something happened in Claremont McKenna with Heather McDonald. But since 2020, um, I have I've never seen even vaguely close to this bad. It's been about two years of some of the worst censorship I've seen in my entire life, and I still have people saying that cancel culture isn't real. So. As far as I was concerned, even though the New York Times was pretty clumsy in how they put it, particularly using a right colloquially, basically saying it's kind of like, well, we have a right not to be shamed or whatever. I'm like, OK, that's you should have ran this by like someone who knows knows more about this. But the overall piece was saying, well, you know, look at our own research. It's like it's really clear that people know what cancel culture is. They're afraid of losing their job. Um, it comes out in every poll, but people still continue to try to wish it away. And at this point, we're, we're this close to having 600 examples of cases in which students were, um, were, where there were attempts to get professors fired. And about two thirds of those are just since 2020. And in, in most of those cases, in the, in the super majority of those cases, the professor gets punished and about a fifth of them, they get fired. And this includes almost three dozen examples of tenured professors getting fired for what they said or, or taught um, the, or, or their research. Which is amazing because like not even 10 years ago, as a First Amendment lawyer, there was one thing that was rock solid. You were not going to get fired as a tenured professor for what you said or your research or your teaching. And now it's becoming almost commonplace. Mm. I wanted to dig into this cancel culture thing with you because I read that article that you wrote about how we need to we need to keep the term because it's useful. I mm -hmm. disagree that the, that it's useful because I think that at this point, it's a culture war cudgel and people think of it differently, even if you define it for yourself. Uh, people people yep. have a different definition in their head. And when, when we can't agree on what a word or a term means, we're going to spend all this time just trying to hash that out rather than talking about the thing itself. So that's one reason. But mm -hmm. also, I think it's curious because you, you distinguish between, you know, uh, free speech law, for, which is enshrined in the First mm -hmm. Amendment, and then free speech culture, you know, just kind of an environment that we, you know, you and I agree, we all agree, should, we should cultivate where we, we try our best to give people the benefit of the doubt, where we try our best to seek out dissenting opinion. But those things aren't the same. 
and they're distinct in many important ways. But in your definition of of cancel culture, which I have right here, um, mm. which you wrote as it's the measurable uptick since roughly 2014 of campaigns to get people fired, disinvited, deplatformed, or otherwise punished for speech that is or would be protected by the First Amendment. Right. What I'm saying is that there should be a thumb on the scale, though, of not immediately, you know, ruining the career of someone who uh, who has a heterodox opinion. Mm-hmm. But and when it comes to why I like the term cancel culture, and this is why I changed my mind on it, by the way, because mm-hmm. I was I was not very not not a very big fan of it. But when when we started doing our own market research and we discovered that most Americans know what it is, they know the term uh, black, white, Republican, Democrat, they're all afraid of it. They're all afraid of losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. They're all afraid of, you know, their friends getting in trouble. And it's only dawned on me. If I stop using this term, I'm leaving most Americans out of the mm. conversation. And and what, to make Jason Stanley happy? <laughs> to, to, to make like, <laughs> to yeah. like, you know, and it's not, not going to work anyway. Right. Um, so so I feel like the the move to, to, to put this on something that's like akin to the euphemism treadmill, um, you're going to not make the people who would really love this not to be a thing they have to be concerned about, who would love to wish it away. Mm-hmm. Um, who you're never going to make happy anyway. And meanwhile, regular Americans are looking at this conversation and you suddenly come up with your own term for cancel culture. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about because yeah. I don't have time to keep up with the lingo. I saw I saw this sort of like parade of horribles and I was kind of like, so you don't want to seriously engage with the idea that people are being fired for their opinions. If mm-hmm. you call your, your it, it, if you're rude to your fellow employees, you can be fired. What I'm talking about is applying the stuff that applies to the employment context when it's an employment context. Mm. Um, when, uh, when you're out in your world, out in the world as a citizen, that's when you would apply more of the, hmm. uh, first amendments, uh, the public forum t- type thinking. But if, uh, yes, you can fire your employee for just being rude, right. um, to, to their fellow employee. And so I, I saw this yeah. and I was like, you really, I, I, I thought it looked a little bit like, I, and I saw a fair amount about, uh, of people do this where it's just kind of like. I have to not be concerned about this. This can't possibly be true. The, the, the right cares about this. It's like also, by the way, people on the left get canceled a lot, too. Right. Um, and yeah, it, it was this bizarre parade of horribles. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sure. If, if when I expand on it more in a full length book, I can I can answer those kind of questions. But mm-hmm. I, I just did. It didn't seem serious to me. It seemed like a gut response and that a lot of catastrophizing about like, oh, this thing's going to happen. It's mm-hmm. like, no, it's not going to happen. And I think, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, what do you think uh, if you could put yourself in their position? What do you mm-hmm. think is motivating that that desire? Because it's it, I'm of the opinion that everyone is trying to do what they believe is the right thing, mm-hmm. even if they're wrong about that or mistaken. So what do you think is where is this coming from in your view so that we don't just dismiss it offhand? I, I generally don't dismiss it offhand, but at this mm-hmm. point, the evidence is so overwhelming that you, you just have to give up on, mm-hmm. you, you know, some people who, who it's like, okay, I get it. Like, it would be very difficult for you to accept that cancel culture is a real thing and something really did change in 2014. But if I mm-hmm. marshal 600 examples, you know, from uh, just from 2015 of professors, you know, like I said, tenured professors getting fired, it's like, okay, you know, mm-hmm. it, I don't think you could ever be convinced that this is a, that this is a problem. So I do think that, yeah, I think that people think they're doing the right thing. And I think that for a lot of people, particularly uh, on campus, there's an idea that if we give anything over, if, if we admit that there's a problem at all, um, that's basically making us morally equivalent to, uh, to the bad guys, right. to, to, to Republicans. And it's, it, I think it's honestly, it's, it's a lot of 
just, I think at this point, it's largely stubbornness and an unwillingness to admit that, that you were wrong. Uh. That's normal. <laughs> that's that's yeah. a very that's a very normal motive. But but at this point, I, I'm my, my patience is largely over. And here's the thing. The way people argue on social media is just maddening. Mm. And, and so there's there's just so much you can actually engage with it after after a certain point. And it ends up being <laughs> I call it the perfect rhetorical fortress. There are like a million different ways to sort of get out of having to take someone else's argument seriously. And the number one one is what about ism? Basically, because like, what about this other thing? And and since I have a large organization, generally, like when they bring up, particularly when it's on campus, what about these 50 professors who also got in trouble who are on the left? I'm like, mm-hmm. you know about them because fire defended right. them. But that's not, you know, like at that and that's swell. But we're, you're running out the clock for us to actually have a meaningful talk about a phenomenon that all the, you know, all the polling shows that there's a problem, all the that, you know, there are hundreds, hundreds of examples. And that's and those are just professors. Like when you start actually counting the, the number of times it happens to students, it's, it, it's orders of magnitude more students get in trouble for this stuff mm. than, than professors. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely one of those things where I think at a certain point you have to convince the people you can and, you know, shrug. Uh, see, <laughs> see if someone has a, like if, if someone is ultimately saying that I should tweak my definition. Sure. Mm-hmm. But when I when I saw what, it, what he was arguing, it just it wasn't worth engaging. I definitely think you might want to consider tweaking the definition. The, my oh, favorite okay. one that I've seen. Yep. Is from Christina Hoff Summers. And she she wrote, she retweeted this a while ago and I bookmarked it because I was like, this is perfect. Yep. She said the term cancel culture is overused, but it refers to yep. cases where individuals face absurdly harsh consequences for relatively minor lapses. And mm-hmm. sometimes there are no lapses at all. I think I think that speaks very well to how much perception is playing a part here and how much a, a kind of over overcorrection to maybe historical wrongs and historical harms that went unanswered. How much of that is an overcorrection right now? I think all of that is sort of baked in there. So I'm curious what you think about that if you've heard about it or Yeah, and and, and that's one of the uh, that's one of the things I'm perfectly happy to, you know, revisit the the definition and and to see if, you know, for constructive feedback on how to make it more precise, but I'm usually arguing against people who are so dead set that this thing isn't actually yeah, happening. Yeah. It's like it's it's really just a way of not talking about the oftentimes, you know, professors that they've haven't actually sent an email to say, "Oh, oh my god, wait a second. Actually, the real story here is this professor is being fired for something that is tame, it's protected. I should rather than you know, immediately say, oh, this person, you know, jumping on Twitter and pointing out that someone's a hypocrite. It's like, why don't you send an email in defense of that professor? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that's so maddening about this discussion is that so much of it is about, you know, sort of like scoring points as opposed to helping actual people. And yeah, so so I, I like John Rausch's definition of cancel culture. I like Christina Hoff Summers' definition of cancel culture. Um, and there's different ways to, you know, to define mm-hmm. it. But for me, from for, for, from uh, sort of my historical definition, it was, you know, been doing First Amendment law for a couple decades. Um, and when this started, I'd, you know, I'd already been at fire since for a good, you know, t- uh, 13 years. And I'd just never seen anything like this number of people getting fired for what they said. Now, I make the distinction between what they said as opposed to potentially, you know, like, um, I, by my definition, Harvey Weinstein, you know, like uh, wasn't canceled, you know, uh, people who actually engaged in like sexual assault or all these kinds of stuff that wasn't canceled. But how what a, a change I've seen um, for people merely expressing opinions or jokes that, that it's been anything but subtle. Mm. 
but things and frankly, dead people can be kind of canceled too, right? Because I think one of the one of the ways to distinguish, um, to kind of like use as a hallmark of, of cancel culture is this, is the consequence of it, which is what makes cancel culture, uh, like it's a unique phenomenon is that you're depriving other people. It's one, it's one thing for you not to engage with this person, like that you don't like, whose opinions you don't like. But it's another thing altogether to deprive other people of that opportunity. That's why disinviting speakers is so powerful. And that is why also, you know, banning books from a library um, is so powerful because it's up to you not to check the book out. But if you want to, you know, deprive everybody else of the, of the chance to check this book out, that is kind of, you know, close to cancel culture. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is, is also because um, so there were people who criticized uh, the article by saying, well, that's just run of the mill censorship. And it's like, uh, not not exactly. And one of the reasons why I wanted to make it sort of a, a, a historical example was to talk about a phenomena that's sort of married to a moment in time um, that, that could actually be, be given a name. But yeah, having, you know, demanding that books be removed from libraries because you don't like the point of view. I mean, that's that's censorship as old as as old as time. What what do you what do you make of kind of um, you know because you said I think that you said twenty twenty in particular is one of the bad one of the worst years for for on campus censorship and and that it's kind of been tracking just this you know one way it's just been increasing as as, as far as you've been seeing in the last few years at fire is is this you know is this kind of uh, do you see in in your uh, research in your database that that part of what's driving this is a sort of Backlash because we are seeing that at least in terms of how critical race theory is being handled right now in K to twelve, that there is this drive to you know pass certain laws um, and to keep these books out of the library. Are you are you seeing kind of a right wing backlash in in um, at least on terms in terms of campus uh, censorship? Oh yeah, well, but but I, I wouldn't necessarily even call it a backlash. Because when I first started noting this big uptick in people getting in trouble for what they said, for what would normally be clearly protected speech, some of the first people to get in trouble were liberal professors for tweeting, you know, intemperate things on on Twitter who got targeted by conservatives and had their careers ruined. There was someone who, after um, the Newtown massacre, and I'm from I'm from Danbury, and like I, I I knew people who had kids at Newtown, you know, and. His angry response was, you know, may it, may it next time be your, your kids NRI. Now, never as a general rule, try to avoid bringing people's kids into it. I, I'm, a, I'm a father myself. And, you know, but but that's part of the reasons why it was so, you know, he, I can understand the, like the rage and, and, and sorrow about that horrifying incident. And they went after him. I think it was Alan. His last name was Professor Guth and it was Kansas State University. And that was one of, you know, maybe a dozen of cases where people uh, where it was conservatives going going after professors on, on, on campus and having actually a lot of success. Why do I think 2020 was so was so much worse? I think we already had a ferocious culture war. You already had, um, you know, tr- the, uh, the last crazy year of the Trump pres- presidency. You also had COVID. And I think that COVID, one of the reasons why we all went a little bit nuts during that is because this is kind of my theory, is just that everybody became their Twitter avatar. Uh, And without face-to-face interaction, 
it's much easier to be much more self-righteous, much more simplistic, much more morally sort of pure. And I think that uh, you got to see that, that, that kind of dynamic, the way interaction is harmed by this sense that we're all on, on the stage all the time. And if people believe that we're all playing to the cameras, people become much more moralistic and much more uncompromising. They become this kind of moral idea of themselves without the, the additional compassion of meeting someone and realizing they're a living, breathing person. So I think that there were lots of things that were driving us crazy in 2020, but I do think that some of it is that that's who I, I fear that's who we become when we're, when we only exist online. I wonder what you think about what is the impetus for this, right? Because you know, you, that, the 2020 and all the stuff that you mentioned kind of mm -hmm. sets the stage, right? But there has to be some urge that the climate that we ended up finding ourselves in was satisfying. And, mm -hmm. and there has to be this urge of, you know, I really don't like this and I want it to go away. And then mm -hmm. just, you know, everyone, I feel everyone has that, right? Like, I would really rather not hear this. I'd really rather people not, you know, discuss this because I think it's so terrible. But it, we, it's interesting that, that some people have different instincts about whether they should indulge that feeling. Where do you think that comes mm -hmm. from? Because I, I know for me, I've, I've been the guy who has been shut up before. And so mm -hmm. I value very much the ability to speak even though someone doesn't like it or is completely misunderstanding me, right? Uh, I've been shut up for the wrong yeah. reasons as well, like just because people didn't get what I was saying. Um, but I, yeah. yeah, what do you think? I, I wonder. Well, you know, there's a reason why I call my blog the eternally radical idea, because it's a question of what's the weirder thing, you know, mm. human social um, conformity pressures or freedom of speech. And historically, freedom of speech mm. is by far the weird um, innovation. Okay. And it doesn't come naturally to us. It, um, it's fragile. Uh, because people want conformity. Um, they, they also like the feeling of sometimes being superior. Sometimes you're generally afraid of, 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 of new ideas. Sometimes you're, you're absolutely correct and someone, someone else is being cruel. Um, and your moral impulse is to like, this person needs to never work again. So all of these sort of conformist um, uh, instincts, you know, they're very tightly tied to our, our existing moral emotions. You know, like, like my friend uh, Jonathan Haidt, writes a writes a fair amount he talks about morality binds and blinds us you know is the way he puts it so i think that these are all much more normal it's much harder to live in an environment where even if you think someone's opinion is evil that they still have a right to it that that's that's a that's a difficult thing to maintain. So I actually think that freedom of speech has to be actively explained. It has to be actively defended because it doesn't come naturally to us. It was I honestly think that one of the reasons why we ended up with free speech as, as, as a concept was just because nobody could conquer all of Europe. And eventually some of the parts that couldn't be conquered, you know, um, after the printing press came out, they started like, wait a second, there actually are some advantages to this, you know, particularly maybe we could have a democratic <laughs> government. We're, we're, turns out we're learning things. I, I feel like we almost mm. stumbled into the value of free speech and then it became kind of like this is actually really helpful towards human progress if we actually are, are loosen up the reins on who's allowed to say what. Mm. It seems to me a symptom of how disconnected we feel from one another, mm -hmm. right? Because I can see, you know, nobody, nobody wants their speech to be restricted, right? I want to be able to say whatever I want to say, yep. because of course I'm reasonable and I'm good and I'm trying to do the right thing. So if you're trying to restrict that, you're actually impeding on me doing the reasonable and right and good thing. But you, no, 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 no. What you're doing yeah. is awful. 
right? And it seems to me that people can't flip the switch there and just kind of look at it from the other perspective and understand that the other person feels exactly the same way. It, it, and it's not there's something disconnected. Well, and, he, and here's the thing: like when I was when I had my breakdown back in 2007, I, I had a mental breakdown in 2007, partially because of the culture war. I got suicidally depressed and I had to be hospitalized. That's what got me into cognitive behavioral uh, therapy. Um, and that's what led to my work with Jonathan Haidt, uh, tr- making the argument essentially that the same habits that m- might make you a censor uh, and uh, c- can also make you anxious and depressed. The, the, the same mental habits can be, can be very bad for you. But I was studying Buddhism at the time. And I always, I always had this, this issue um, with the uh, kind of Buddhism I was studying. It was Shambhala Buddhism. Was kind of like the sub brand, if you want to call it that, um, was that there's this idea of essential goodness, that essentially the world is essentially good. And I could believe that, but only to a point, um, because I do believe it, that human evil exists. Um, generally, it's you know, a, a sociopathic desire to cause actual you know, harm to other people. It's rare, mm-hmm. is the good news, um, right. but, but, it, but it exists. So we also have to you know, acknowledge, in, in some cases, there are. People who deserve to be canceled, they're, you know, Vladimir Putin, I'd like as far as, far as someone, you, you know, uh, being an exception to my general opposition to, you know, war crime executions. I like I, I think like pe- there are people in there who qualify by any reasonable definition as, as being evil. So, like, I don't think necessarily it's gen- I think it's generally true that people are doing the best they can and that generally they come from good, uh, good, good motivations. But the uh, the maliciousness of some people, the untrustworthiness of some people can actually complicate that narrative, too, particularly in a situation like the culture war, where each like uh, the worst parts of both sides or as far as they're concerned, probably the best parts of both sides. They think this is a struggle of good versus evil. So anything's warranted. Sure. I think it's useful to think of free speech, which you said is rare and honestly very abstract. And I think it's very difficult to get humans to buy into that abstract idea. it's helpful to think of it in terms of adaptive and maladaptiveness. So when is free speech adaptive and when it's not? And it obviously depends also on just the, the, the level that you're talking. Is it adaptive for you as a person in power? Mm-hmm. Is it adaptive for the whole society? And what's interesting is, you know, we're speaking at a time when, you know, the, the Russian invasion is looking like it's not going very well for Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and also things are happening in China that, that, that looks, um, you know, like very heavy handedness in terms of uh, suppression of, of um, you know, like COVID policies, lockdowns, but also not allowing people to talk about the problems that they're facing. They're going through food shortages and they had to censor uh, people complaining on Chinese Twitter Weibo um, because they don't want those problems to get leaked out. Um, and what we're, we're starting to see is, is kind of these authoritarian type leaders getting bad information Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's it's Putin's military uh, commanders giving him bad intel, oh, this was going to be an easy invasion, and him kind of you know being th- completely blindsided by this. This is a great observation. And, and but- Xi Jinping as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Xi Jinping as well, right? And and yep. so you're you're starting to see there are global like because you know free speech is really on the decline globally right now, and mm-hmm. there's Since 2005, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, can you weigh in a bit on the global context and what is what it's saying right now about authoritarian countries that we're watching go through this? Yeah, yeah. What you're saying is so perceptive. And it's one of the reasons why I'm a long term optimist for freedom of speech, not necessarily a short term one. Um, but <laughs> um, and, and the reason why I'm a long term optimist is because freedom of speech works really well. 
And what do I mean by that? Um, there's something that I always I, I, I didn't know until I, I read against Cass Sunstein's uh, one of one of his many books talking about this report um, that I, I believe was George Marshall commissioned right, right after World War II to try to figure out why, you know, why did the U.S., why was the U.S. on the winning side of the war? And one great thing in there that he points out is we have, a, even though there were restrictions during World War II, we had a comparatively free press um, that the Japanese empire didn't have, that the Nazis didn't have, and of course, the Soviets didn't either, but the Soviets were an ally. And he points out this is a major advantage because you can openly talk about problems. Um, people, uh, you, and then you find out where the problems are, what those problems are, you get better information, and then you can actually fix things. Meanwhile, like in the, in the Nazi system, it was just such a, 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 not just an evil system, but a deeply corrupt system where people were very afraid to, to point out anything was wrong to Hitler or any of his little, you know, sub-Nazis under, uh, underneath them. But, and that's a real harm to try to run a society is mm. if you can't actually figure out what's wrong in, the, uh, wrong in the first place. So free speech actually has a lot of advantages to society, even beyond the, the obvious, like um, innovation and like scientific innovation. It's knowing legitimately like what, what is actually going on in society. I mean, which is my whole theory. I call it the lab and the looking glass theory of freedom of speech, that there's always value in knowing what people really think and why. Um, and meanwhile, like the, I, I wrote an article about this right at the beginning of coronavirus. Like if you could imagine a situation in which China had had a free press, I honestly think there's a good chance that it never would have gotten very far to begin with. Because as soon as you start having a mystery virus, you know, clustered, I think we could have had a much more comprehensive response to it very early on um, if it hadn't been if it hadn't been suppressed. So I, I think that there is a big disadvantage not allow, allowing free speech in your society. Well, growing up in Singapore, I was always told um, that free speech actually, you know, leads to um, an unstable environment that, you know, you could have demagogues kind of uh, exploit, um, ex exploit these uh, cultural divisions, which, which is, you know, it's interesting because I'm seeing the same argument being made actually from the left today about the need to, to send to, to regulate more speech, especially, you know, after this uh, news that Elon Musk is uh, purchasing Twitter, that um, you do see some of these blue check, uh, you know, kind of uh, liberal types saying, OK, I think we need to do something about this. And um, and and that it will allow just, you know, too many people to unfettered conversations. And it's it's an argument I've frankly heard my whole life growing up in a place like Singapore, where there is, you know, draconian uh, speech codes enshrined in, in the law. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see that this same um, argument being peddled now by by the left with regard to this you know, brave new world that they're afraid of with uh, Elon Musk as our overlord. Yeah. Well, it, and it's one of these things where I, I, I had a, a also bring Stanley Fish up again. I felt like um, Jeremy Waldron, who's like one of the leading sort of advocates of hate speech laws, reading his book, uh, I felt like he didn't understand poli how politics works, you know, as, essentially. And this is something that I have to explain when I go on to onto campus, um, because there talk about misinformation. I feel like we have a generation of young people misinformed about the historical role of freedom of speech, because I believe that they're being taught that, that free speech protects the, th the three Bs, the bully, the bigot, and the robber baron. And I always have to explain, okay, robber barons, let's, let, let's say that you mean the rich and the powerful. Well, guess what? <laughs> Historically, the rich and powerful do pretty well because they are rich and powerful. Like they're, they're, I mean, kings went to the rich and powerful um, in order to borrow money, and that led to some of the early parliaments, for example. But by the time you get to democracy, if you're talking about the bully and the bigot, then um, that as long as they have 50 plus percentage of the vote, 
you know, they they get to make the rule. And so when James Madison was originally thinking about freedom, about whether or not we needed a separate amendment to direct free speech, his initial response was, well, whose hands are we tying? Are we tying our own? Like, why would we want to do that? The British Parliament um, has uh, power to pass whatever it wishes to, and it's, it's the will of the people. But he gradually came around to the idea of, oh, yeah, actually, we are going to be tying our own hands because we don't want this to turn into a seesaw situation where every four to six years, um, we, uh, one side, we go from one side being censored to the other side being censored. So freedom of speech as a philosophical concept and certainly as a legal concept is always about minority rights, minority opinions. Um, it's al also about unpopular opinions um, that are not, you know, the, that elites, you know, you don't, don't, don't share. But unfortunately, uh, because campuses have gone from um, sort of campuses being sort of like an activist, activist uh, um, zone was a minority opinion in the early 60s. And therefore, they argued for robust freedom of speech. That became a supermajority opinion. And once you're, you, you have very little viewpoint diversity, once you're actually monolithically one sort of political persuasion, there's a tendency, or at least that you, you, when you've essentially won, there's a tendency to start seeing freedom of speech as part of the problem because you don't need it as much anymore. You're the one setting the rules now. So there's a, there's a very cynical, very typical thing that happens is once you, you, you argue free speech, when, you, when you're weak, when you get to power, you close the door behind you. Um, and I feel like we're miseducating a generation of people both inside and outside the United States because we can't actually, um, universities can't admit to themselves that, that they're now the man. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very human thing to, you know, everybody wants the club, but nobody wants to be beat with it. Right. Yeah. But it, it's just, I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to fix that, but it's, it's interesting, you know, that you, you talked about kind of, you know, the fact that if we had more free speech in, in China, for example, more, mm -hmm. a more free speech culture and a free press that maybe the coronavirus wouldn't have been such a shit show. Right. Uh, and, and I totally see that. And then a lot of the historical examples you brought up that are kind of at the governmental level, but, you know, Melissa alluded to this a moment ago where we have pushback now for kind of a similar reason, mm -hmm. but it's the opposite argument, right? It's, it's saying we have too much information. There's too much, too many people are saying too many things that are wrong. And now we have too many people who are, you know, not getting vaccinated or believing, you know, crazy things about ivermectin or whatever. Right. And, and we need to shut that down because it's actively causing harm. So it's, it's yeah. weird that it's coming from opposite poles, but it's sort of the same problem, right. Of like the wrong information is getting out or inversely the right information is not getting out. Yeah. Well, the, the disinformation problem is a problem that, you know, anybody, uh, any serious thinker in, in first amendment law takes seriously, because the idea that, you know, people spreading, harmful misinformation that could actually get people killed is, is a very legitimate concern. Um, yeah. But how do you get there is the problem. And this is one of the reasons why I, you know, I love the work of, of people like my friend, Jonathan Rausch, and I could wrote this absolutely fabulous book, Constitution of Knowledge, which I recommend to everybody. Because there's a, if I had to add one great untruth to coddling of the American mind, um, it's that and, and the great untruths are bad ideas that we sort of unconsciously teach people that are, that are, that are contrary to uh, ancient wisdom and and and, and uh, well-established psychological thought. Um, what I'd add is this impression that human beings tend to have that the world by itself is pretty easy to understand. I mean, it seems pretty easy to understand, but that's one of the reasons why I really like that Yuval Harari started publicizing like the idea of 
rebranding the the um, the Enlightenment as the discovery of ignorance, because that's really more what it was. It wasn't that suddenly like we were enlightened. It was like, wow, oh, my God, like we're wrong about everything. When you start <laughs> testing this stuff, like it actually that. turns out. With, oh, wow. Uh, so so we have to even stuff that seems intuitively obvious when we test it, we're like, it's completely wrong. Um, and, and we and so. The nature, the way you produce knowledge is actually counterintuitive. And I mean, like in the most literal sense, our intuitions tell us our, well, our, my, my eyes and ears clearly aren't lying. But unfortunately, the more you test that, we're not, we're not that, we're not that good at just guessing what the truth is. So truth mm. is a process it, it, of, of finding things out. Um, in John Rauch's first book, you know, uh, look, uh, um, Kindly Inquisitors, he talks about there being two rules. No argument is ever truly over and nobody gets to call special authority to shut down an argument. Um, and that can be frustrating and un, 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 unsatisfying. But I, what I'm afraid of is watching people make the disinformation argument. Yes, disinformation is absolutely a problem. But then very quickly jump to, and that's why we need, you know, the people who know everything that's true to be up here and the experts to be up here. And then, then we can shut down all the disinformation. I'm like, that's called omniscience. <laughs> and that doesn't exist. <laughs> Well, well, now now we're we're starting to get um, a ministry of disinformation, <laughs> a ministry of truth. Um, enshrined in, I think it's the Department of Homeland Security. So, so, you know, two Orwellian names at the same time. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, 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 and I think, I think that, but I think that to be fair, to be fair, the, the the concern about disinformation in particular, which is distinct from misinformation is, is that this is uh, coming from state actors, foreign state actors that, that are used, that are basically closed societies hacking open societies yeah. uh, by waging some sort of information warfare. Um, and, and that's really happening. It, it is really happening. But but, you know, it's also quite likely that the correction will be will be overused. Yes. Um, it's it's and, and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that honestly, if 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 our people, if American if Americans are, are convinced by, you know, some propaganda that <laughs> Russia puts out, I mean, win with better propaganda, you know, like it's. It's um, it's mm. free market of ideas. Like we should be able to compete on that front um, instead of shutting that down because it's going to be hard to adjudicate actually what really came from a foreign source, what really came from a oh, absolutely a non foreign source, and and yeah, but 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 it is a real problem. Yaka Mishigama, another book to recommend. He wrote a a, a book called Free Speech from uh, Socrates to Social Media, which I highly recommend. It's a it's a, it's a fantastic book. And he has a lot of data in yeah. there about the, yes, misinformation, disinformation oh, yes. is real, um, but it's not nearly as much of a problem as we think because people aren't born yesterday. You know, like, like they actually, a lot of times it has less influence on our, on our lives um, than we tend to think. We tend to exaggerate how much we are affected by misinformation, disinformation. And I am more afraid of, you know, of, of the cure rather, or rather than the disease. But I will say this, there's one part that I think is we are seeing, and this is, I'm, I'm on, I, now I'm excited about Martin Gurry. You, you know, Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the <laughs> Public, you know, like he talks about how um, social media was this globally destabilizing force that you first saw um, really in action at like Occupy Wall Street, but most importantly, there in spring, also protests in Spain, also protests in Israel. And one of the things that, that social media did was it badly undermined authority. Now, it might, in that sense, it might be an overcorrection that experts, you know, suffered are, are not taken as seriously as, as maybe they should be. But in many cases, the experts haven't exactly done a great job of winning that respect. So right now we're in a situation where right. people don't really trust experts. 
and particularly if experts come from academia, where you could literally get fired for having the wrong opinion. That undermines trust in experts by that. And, and we, we end up being in this, you know, epistemic disaster. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about the social media thing because so much of the tension, in my view, comes from a lack of faith in other people. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like what you said, you know, pe- most people weren't born yesterday, which is to say that they're not just going to believe some random nonsense just because it's put in front of their face. Right. Yeah, some of them will. Um, some, <laughs> sure, some people will. But I actually but think enough. that, I think that, I think that the larger risk actually is that the misinformation or disinformation that people are exposed to confirms something that they already thought or wanted to think. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the reason why they go. It's not, it's not like someone was ready and primed to vote for Joe Biden and a single piece of, of misinformation or a week's worth of misinformation on yes. Twitter, you know, now they're a Trump supporter, right? Like, I yep. feel like that's highly unlikely. And it yeah. seems to me that people have already made up their minds on certain things based on values, based on experience, based on a million other things. And so maybe our focus is in the wrong place. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's also a very cool point that, that uh, Jakob talks about in his book as well, um, that there's interesting research indicating that even Nazi propaganda, like one of the most comprehensive propaganda machines that ever existed, wasn't very good of making anti-Semites out of people who weren't already anti-Semite. Um, and right. I can't you know, speak to the methodology there. Um, you know, I, I can't you know, vouch entirely for the research, but it does make, make a point that seems to be intuitively true. It's not as if, like you said, it's like, I was going to vote for Biden, but then I saw this like one, you know, one thing on, I happened to be on Breitbart or something like that. It's like, huh. Right. So you're, you're going to vote for Biden, but you're on Breitbart. Like some, some of it is, is really just people, you know, getting more information for the position they, they already, already agree with. And that's Cass Sunstein's kind of like hydraulic idea of, of group polarization that essentially um, if you're in a bubble, you just get more and more and more literal number of arguments on your, on your side. And I think that the, Mm Um, social media really plays into that part of polarization that, that, that um, if, if you put yourself too much in a bubble, you, you get a you know, hundred times more arguments on your side th- th- than on the other. Also, me and Hype point to the fact that there's that other element of, of that where you get this tribal identity. So, you know, must I believe it or can I believe it kind of, uh, kind of distinction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you touched on it, actually, but I wanted to ask you, tell us about the Weimar fallacy. Uh-huh. Yeah. This is one of these things where um, one of the most consistently used arguments against freedom of speech in theory is one uh, largely popularized by Gene Stefanik and <clears throat> Richard Delgado of speech code fame. Um, Richard Delgado was one of the early advocates of, of um, hate speech codes on, on, um, uh, on campus going back to the early 1980s. I actually, I just did a piece on this for Persuasion with, with uh, Talia, Talia Barnes talking about you know, this history there. And I did a debate with him in 2003 at Williams. And I, I thought this was going to be, you know, like the intellectual you know, jousting match of my life. And really his arguments were essentially, well, you know, um, it could have stopped, uh, censorship could have stopped the Nazis and censorship could have stopped Rwanda. And I was like, but that's not historically backed up. I mean, the and, and this was before I knew some, some of these even more powerful details, because of course the Nazis were um, elected, you know, they, they became the people who were in charge of the rules that uh, I think the, the biggest success they had was around 41%, which in a proportional represent, uh, a proportional representation system is, is a huge, you know, you know, amount to have. So they would just become in charge of the rules anyway. And they would use those, like those hate speech rules that you like so much, suddenly Nazis would be in charge of them. 
But what I didn't know until reading Fleming Rose's Tyranny of Silence was that Nazis went to jail for saying anti-Semitic things. They didn't call them hate speech laws because like, that's a term that was invented later. But they had defamation of religion laws. So Stryker, the guy, the guy who did um, Der Sturmer, like the horrifyingly anti-Semitic newspaper, he went to jail for like, like a year or something like that. Goebbels was brought up in charges. I mean, Hitler was not allowed to speak um, in, in a number of provinces. He was not allowed to speak on campus. Um, and he made big posters of himself saying like uh, with, with tape over his mouth saying only one man. And it's funny, dude, out of two billion people in the world, because it reminds you of the <laughs> smaller world back then, only one man cannot speak uh, on Germany's college campuses. So he actually used it to his advantage. He used it to his advantage to play himself as the victim. Hitler loved playing himself as the victim. It's all over Mein Kampf. He feels very, very sorry for himself. He's a pathetic fool. Um, but they did actually try to clamp down on on hateful speech in, in, in the 30s, and it actually made them stronger. But there was a really simple solution. Rather than going after opinion, Weimar needed to be crack, cracking down on right-wing violence because they were having street fights. They were, they were murdering communists. That, that, they were, that, that essentially, if you clamp down, and of course, the reason why Hitler was in, in prison in the first place in 1923 was he tried to overthrow the government. He killed he, like, his, his, his group, like they killed a police officer in the course of this, and he's sentenced to like almost no time in jail. I, and again, to, like the uh, what I brought up, the idea of the death penalty for, 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 for Putin, I don't think even the staunchest, you know, um, uh, 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 opponent of, of, of capital punishment would feel all of that bad if Germany had decided to, you know, this guy tried to overthrow the government, that's treason, you know. Or put him in jail forever. The world would be much better off if Weimar took uh, violence more seriously and clamped down more on violence. It wasn't that they they took free speech too seriously because they didn't take free speech that seriously. Wow, I, and I, I never I had never heard about this stuff, and it's fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 kind of fun to get to live in in, in a, studying the history of all this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, it's what I went to law school to do, and. I, I, people laughed at me for, um, you know, hyper specializing in First Amendment law, but, you know, I've been doing it for, for 20, 21, 22 years now. <laughs> we need more of you. <laughs> it's interesting also to kind of run the counterfactual and think about what would have, how would these global events have really changed if actually there was social media, if people could weigh in on things as we went into the Vietnam War, as we went into, you know, I mean, remember Iraq, uh, the decision to, to go into Iraq also, like, Social media was not a thing back then, and it was the New York Times was cheerleading, and most of the other major newspapers were actually cheerleading for it as well. But it's interesting to think about what would have happened if there was, you know, this uh, platform that enabled the masses to speak and weigh in. I, I, just seeing what I'm seeing right now with um, the, you know, Russian invasion in Ukraine, and just how, you know, polarized the discussion is too. It's I'm sure there would have been a lot more checks and balances um, on the ruling class um, if if social media had actually existed, uh, you know, in history. Um, and OK, so the question I actually wanted to ask you, Greg, is um, free speech right now is seen as um, the domain of, of, of the right. I think that's why there's so much anxiety about anyone kind of paying lip service yeah. to free speech like um, Elon Musk is, is seen as right wing. And I think that's very, uh, very harmful to the cause of, of free speech, to the work that you do at FIRE, for example, and, and to extent, the work that we do at FAIR as well. So how do we change that? How, how can we wrestle that back? Because I think as long as this is, is happening, it's very easy to shut the argument down because it, then it's not even worthwhile engaging 
because anything right wing or conservative mm-hmm. is now automatically branded as just evil. And so how, how do we, it seems like part of what we need to do is, is change this mindset. And do you have any idea yeah. of how we can do that? Well, it, it, it's maddening that freedom of speech um, is, is sometimes perceived as, as a right wing issue now because it's so artificial and it's something that we all saw coming, um, you know, decades ago. You know, it's the slow motion train wreck that essentially, you know, again, minority opinion in, in, in the early 60s to super majority in the 80s. And next thing you know, um, they're clamping down on freedom of speech uh, on, on campus. The best resistors of that to a degree were actually uh true liberal professors um, and, and administrators are like, no, we still believe in freedom of speech. But after a while, you know, they die off, they retire. And then suddenly, because, you know, campuses can't admit that they are very powerful, um, they, you know, miseducate people about the role of free speech in human history. Now, this is something that I want every single young person in the United States to understand. They tried to have a civil rights movement prior to the late 1950s. They tried to have a women's rights movement well before the late 1950s. They even tried, and this is one I only found out more recently, they even tried several times to have a gay rights movement prior to the late 1950s. What changed in the late 1950s? Um, A greater appreciation for free speech culture, which actually does come out in the polling. Um, Jeff Sachs was kind of surprised um, uh, when he he saw some of the polling indicates actually as a popular value, it was surprisingly strong in the 1950s. But then it also became legally strong after after the second Red Scare. Um, and, you know, you ask any of these activists themselves, you, you, you talk to um, uh, John Lewis, who used to live in my neighborhood, like, he, like his quote on it is couldn't be more beautiful, which is without freedom of speech, without the First Amendment, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. Um, and this was echoed in, in uh, including Dr. King, you know, would talk about the importance of freedom of speech. One of his, I think his actual literal last speech was about, you know, um, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. It's almost, it's like chillingly beautiful. Um, when it comes to the gay rights movement, I mean, Jonathan Rausch points out it wasn't just that the, that the advocates for gay rights and, and, and the gay people themselves took advantage of free speech, which surely they did. Um, but it was even helpful, actually really quite helpful for people to hear how despicable a lot of their opponents were. About, they, were they were a bunch of closed minded bigots. So, for, you know, if you care about women's rights, if you care about gay rights, if you care about civil rights, freedom of speech is what brought that uh, to you. And I want every American. Uh, to know this. Um, And when it comes to the idea of just, you know, you frame something as conservative, first of all, pointing out that free speech has benefited everybody, but if anything, it's it's benefited people on the left historically more than people on the right. But I do want to just start pushing back on this idea. So we're, we're really just going to, if we can label something conservative, you don't have to take it seriously anymore. I mean, like, what are we in kindergarten? Like, this, this is a this is a lousy, <laughs> lousy way to argue. And and so, like, this was one of the things that happened when Emma Camp, who's a former fire intern, who's very much a liberal um, at UVA, you know, she publishes an article talking about a chilled atmosphere on 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 on, on campus and about like how it's difficult to have like good discussions. And so much of the of the discourse is like, well, she's really conservative. It's like, and that would mean, well, first of all, she's not. Uh, but but second of all, and so what? You know, like, does that mean you suddenly don't have to listen to her? And implicit in the entire discussion was, well, you know, if I can label you this, and by the way, 90% of, the, the, of humanity is, you know, conservative by this definition, the, uh, I don't have to listen to you anymore. Like, I, I think we should reject that as a premise to, be, to begin with, but we also have to do a better job of teaching people their, uh, their history. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of uh, terrible ways of arguing, I wanted <laughs> to ask you about social media in particular, because Ugh, yeah. I, 
and I'm not sure how, how I feel about this totally, but I'm curious about your perspective as someone who's so focused on free speech. Yeah. So, you know, let's just say Twitter, for example, you know, Elon just bought Twitter and ostensibly his, his mission is to make it a, you know, a forum for free discourse, right? He Mm -hmm. wants to correct some of the, what he, what he feels are, you know, the, the wrongs that were done to, to kind of stifle speech from one direction in particular, it seems. Um, But anyway, I think that that brings up a a number of interesting sort of predicaments, which Mm -hmm. reminds me of, you know, thinking back to the time Donald Trump was finally booted from Twitter and the reaction to that. And I'm still unsure about how I really feel because on the one hand, Twitter is a private company. It's owned by people and they can set their rules and parameters how they like. And so that they have every right to eliminate whoever they want for whatever reason they want. But on the other hand, it, it is being treated as a public square, mm-hmm. whether it is one or not, right? It's being treated as one. And if it's going to be treated as one, that sort of starts to push against some of those, some of those points on the, on the one hand, you know, about them having the right to remove whoever they want. So mm-hmm. what do you think? What, what should we do there? How, how should it work? How could it work? Yeah. How do you feel about this? I, er, kind of early on uh, before it really even looked like he was going to, uh, when it looked like he was actually backing away from uh, buying Twitter or, you know, trying to take it over during that like weird faint moment. Um, right. I, I did an open letter to him um, saying, listen, I saw you, that. Don't, you don't have to be bound by the First Amendment. Um, although there are people, you know, like there are there are politicians who would love to do that. Um, but I urge you to avail yourself of its wisdom, you know, a hundred years of some of the best thinkers in, um, in America trying to figure out how you have free speech in the real world, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, that doesn't mean that every single, you know, first amendment protected thing you have to, you have to host, but you know, if you're going to call something threats, then there's a great definition of threats that actually makes a lot of practical sense. And you can say that we're tying ourselves to that incitement, same thing, you know, um, and that if you are going to have exceptions. You know, t- take advantage of this exi- this pre-existing body of wisdom. It, you know, is is the argument. One thing that was particularly, and of course, like this happened to me with with University of Austin. Um, University of Austin is this experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that uh, Panel Canalis and Joe Lonsdale and a bunch of other people are doing. Barry Weiss is involved with it as well. Um, in order to start an entirely new university, um, and I got invited to t- on, on Jane Coaston's podcast uh, for the New York Times to talk about this. And it, it seemed like it kept on coming back to like, but Greg, this will work out this way, right? And I'm like, I don't know how it's going to work out, but shouldn't <laughs> we all be wishing them well? You know, because like just on cost alone, just on cost and administrative alone, not even getting into academic freedom and free speech. Like we need some high quality, high rigor alter- alternatives to the currently ludicrously expensive, um, you know, uh, inefficient model. Um, and I feel the same way about the Elon Musk thing. Do I know how it's going to work out? Of course I don't. Nobody does. Um, right. But should we be hoping that it's better for free speech? And I would like to think that, the, that, that for most Americans, and actually this comes out in polling too, again, right, left, black, white, all demographic groups are pretty good with freedom of speech, with the exception of the relatively small percentage of people who run Twitter. And, and there was a Hidden Tribe survey that talked that labeled the top 8% uh, of America in terms of um, uh, wealth and education as progressive activists. Uh, and interestingly, it was the second most white group as well, right next to the uh, most far right groups. Um, and that essentially, the yeah, it's, it is kind of funny because um, the uh, 
that it's a very it's like a small percentage of a small uh, of a small percentage have been taught that free speech is actually part of the problem. But boy, are they powerful on Twitter, because even just the mention of freedom of speech was like, oh, no. It's, and it's like uh, we and again, we all saw this coming. But the extent to which that's part of some of the groupthink on Twitter is that free speech itself is now this tainted term. It, that was deeply troubling. Um, and you would think that someone arguing for f- more free speech on, on Twitter, you know, even 10 years ago would have been like, right on. And, but now there was like uh, gasps and shrieks. So your position sounds like Pes- you know, there's uh, nothing- pessimistically optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> so like basically, basically, there's nothing we can do per se, but we can kind of advocate and try to influence. Maybe, maybe if Elon is in charge, we can kind of, hey, you know, check this out. This would be a good way for you to kind of structure things. Oh, I think I think there's a lot that we can do. Um, okay. I, I think I think that there's a lot that we can do. And actually, Angel and, and Melissa, I think you already do a lot of this, which is try to have better arguments on Twitter. You know, try to hear each other out. Try to actually because the thing is, it's like, yes, there are awful arguments on social media, just completely like, oh, my God, this is so frustrating. Like, what? why did I even bother engaging? But I see an awful lot of people like, okay, that's your perspective. Well, I think of this thing. And like, they're actually, believe it or not, are constructive dialogues going on on Twitter. Like, I feel like I live in, in a comparatively like good neighborhood on Twitter because people, you know, they, they'll crack jokes and they'll discuss things, they'll disagree. And some people won't entirely flip out. Um, one of the things we can do is just not accept that it has to be a hell site um, to, uh, right. to, <laughs> to be curious yeah. about what other people genuinely think, to know, um, to know where they're coming from, which, which I think that you modeled really, really well. Um, Partially by starting from the position, sure, some people are dishonest and sure, some people aren't worth engaging with. But I'm not going to start from that perspective because I know there are plenty Mm -hmm. of people out there uh, who are worth engaging. And that's where I had the the second part of my open letter to to, uh, Elon Musk. And this is going to sound silly, but I still have a little bit of the actually quite a bit of the techno optimist in me. Um, Yes, uh, Billions of people in the discussion um, is going to be highly disruptive. It's going to have all sorts of, 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 of negative consequences. But we shouldn't give up on the idea that it could actually lead to something better. Because here's why. Printing press, you know, that added millions of people to the conversation. It was necessarily going to be a, a disruptive. There was no way to put the genie back in the bottle, um, you know, in 1510 or 1521 when, when Henry first tried, tried to um, – clamped down on it. Um, and it was, it had some really horrifying results. The, the witch trials increased in number because people were able to, uh, uh, to, to publish the, 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 basically the handbook for how you tell someone's a witch, which is dark, ugly yeah. chapter of human history. Um, but also there were 200 years of religious war. Um, so it, it was with serious, serious costs. But ultimately, we have this institution of disconfirmation. We have suddenly, with all that many more people part of the conversation, you could actually figure out what was true, what, at least what was not true, much more quickly with much, many more minds concentrated on that. We now have the biggest collective brain that's ever existed. Um, we do waste a lot of it on you know, cat, cat photos and silly culture war stuff. <laughs> but particularly if we remember some of the rules of good argumentation, I have not entirely given up on the idea of like having, I, I sometimes call it like a stream within Twitter, where it's essentially about like, let's have a serious conversation about like, what do we think you know, uh, about this and what am I missing in this theory? And that you can actually have a high standard for what the upward potential of social media is. Um, so uh, I, I think that by modeling that behavior, by asking for something more sophisticated, but not being so pessimistic about um, the, the way social media is now is definitely not the way social media 
is the way social media is always going to be. Cultures adapt, people adapt. But to also remember that there's, a, there's an upward potential to it, which is literally unprecedented in human history to have this many people be able to talk to each other this easily. What about, um, what about your solutions for higher education? Ugh. What do you think is, you know, let's say there is a couple things, maybe the top two, three things that right now snap of the finger that you could do, that we could do as a society to tip the culture away from this censorious, uh, you know, fragile culture that's going on right now at universities. Is it something to do with, you know, gutting the administration? Is it viewpoint diversity? What, what are the top two or three things that you think we could do as a society to, to change that? It has gotten so much worse um, in higher education just in the past couple of years. Um, I'm much more pessimistic than I, than I was previously. I'm much more pessimistic that, that there can be like even just a one or two things that, that could be done. Um, I am sympathetic to the idea that we should be forgiving some amount of student debt, but not without reducing the, the, the hyper bureaucratization of universities, um, without doing something that actually um, decreases the, the expense. And this has real ramifications for freedom of speech and academic freedom, because one of the things that went hand in hand with the mass bureaucratization of universities were more administrators who thought literally, and in some cases they were right, it was their job to clamp down on speech, to run the bias-related training programs, to, 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 to literally police student speech, and to run hotlines that let you tell on your professor if, if they've offended somebody. So I think that I don't see this getting better without some meaningful attempt to reduce the ratio of administrator to professors. And that's a big lift. And it's not even on. Um, it's, it's not even like a, it's not even being considered at the moment. Meanwhile, we're, we're you know, the, the Biden administration is the, doing the uh, is considering forgiving a lot of debt, which is essentially reinflating the bubble. They'll, they'll have no incentive to ever meaningfully reform if this, you know, if this influx of cash is always going to be coming in and then magically, um, magically forgiven. So I think that there has to be big reforms. I think there has to be new institutions. And I think one way that it could work, and I think a lot about this, and maybe University of Austin can help with this, but University of Austin can't do this by itself. Um, I've, I've learned probably as much from being an employer um, at, oh, at FIRE um, than, than anything else. And if I'm hiring someone from the Yales or Harvards or Stanfords, I am pretty much guaranteed only two things. <laughs> They're probably pretty smart, and they were hard workers in high school. I don't know if they know stats. I don't know if they know history. I don't know if they know anything about law or politics, really anything else. And I think that, and after writing Coddling the American Mind, employers all over the country are coming to me and saying, well, the recent graduates from these schools um, it just isn't working because every small inter negative interaction with their fellow employees, it turns, it goes up to human resources and it turns into like a big thing that shuts down the organization for, for, uh, for a while. I think that if someone were to say, not only is this institution going to produce, you know, going to guarantee you that the, pe the, the people graduating from it are um, smart and hardworking, but we can go a step further. We can say they can write, they understand stats, they can do all of these other things. And since I feel like elite higher education isn't doing nearly as good of a job as you would expect it to do doing that, there are some opportunities for reform, but I don't see anything on the horizon um, that makes me too optimistic right now. How about Title IX reform? Do you think that's something that needs to be done? We, we achieved that to a large degree um, un, under the Trump administration, somewhat to our own surprise. We, we got a lot of Title IX reform, better, better, clearer definitions of harassment, because uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't know 
that the speech code movement of the 80s was overwhelmingly taking advantage of harassment codes to redefine harassment as offensive speech. Um, and that got sort of um, uh, hopelessly intertwined with the Department of Education definition of Title IX. So if you know, people wonder why we would oppose you know, some of these um, har- harassment codes, it's because they were routinely abused to clamp down on speech, not the pattern of discriminatory behavior. We got a lot of those changes. Um, we got better due process protections in terms of Title IX. And it, unfortunately, it looks like the Biden administration is chipping away at it. I think there's a limit to how much um, they can chip away at it, because the, the big difference between when Obama did this back in 2011 is that now there's you know, dozens and dozens of, of bad cases on, on record where it, the, the schools were like, I felt like I had to, you know, um, I was almost obliged to kick this person out, even though I didn't think they'd done anything wrong because mm. we were being pressured by the Department of Education. So I, I think that we, we actually were able to achieve and we're very proud of it, a lot of to help along some some real Title IX reforms. But unfortunately, those are in jeopardy by, you know, um, an administration that I otherwise have some sympathy with. So it seems to me that a running theme that we've we've inadvertently created throughout this conversation is is about how much responsibility we personally and individually have to foster this culture that we want or this better future that we want. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads me to you know, despite the challenges and despite some of the pessimism that we've had to grapple with here. Uh, it leads me to the final question that we ask every guest, which is hopefully more hopeful, hopefully more optimistic. Um, our focus at FAIR, is, as you know, is to provide what we call a pro-human approach to engaging with these issues and coming up with solutions for these issues. So the question for you is, what does pro-human mean to you? How do you conceptualize that? And how would you advise people in their everyday lives to take a more pro-human approach to these things? I think a pro-human is to have affection for humans' limitations and um, predictable flaws. Um, and, I, and I think that looking at like the last 20 years of media, I felt like we were headed towards this really interesting place where suddenly uh, the best TV shows um, were like Mad Men and The Sopranos, and um, they were shows about genuine moral questions that didn't have easy answers, but also that focused a lot of times on genuinely despicable uh, people. And that's not to say that, like, you know, you should uh, you should respect genuinely despicable people, but it was a sophisticated way to talk about all human beings flaws. Um, And I think that uh, one thing that we're lacking right now um, is when I was younger, younger, goodness, 10 years ago, I felt like there was there was an idea that you could have affection for people and not be so sort of like to to give them sort of a uh, cut them some slack, kind of figure out where they're coming from, all all of this kind of stuff, like assume that they're going to make mistakes. Um, That's been torn apart over the last 10 years by this much uh, more manichaeist kind of culture war struggle where either you're good or you're evil and uh, and I might think you're good one day, but you say the wrong thing on on the Twitters and suddenly, you know, you know you're, you're, you're evil for the rest of your life. I think that part of being pro-human is to have affection for people that you disagree with, to have affection for people who you think are wrongheaded, but nonetheless see them, see them as people who are uh, just as flawed and oftentimes, you know, just as well-meaning um, as you. Beautifully put. Greg Lukianoff, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. 
can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com. And tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again, and see you next time.